Hello, I'm Oliver Culling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. We're a podcast dedicated to remembering what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and, in particular, the role that television played in our lives and society around us. The 1970s were unique, as television was a central plank in our society. With only three channels, lots of us watching in black and white, or monochrome as some insisted calling it, and our country suffering economic uncertainty and practical hardship, television provided an escape for us all, and something for us to talk about with each other in schools, colleges and workplaces. It provided something that wasn't totally depressing, like power cuts and three-day weeks. As usual, thank you for all your comments on previous episodes. It seems that my family was not alone in having a cupboard full of drinking glasses obtained from petrol stations, and that I'm not alone in still having Esso's foil football badge collection sat in a box somewhere. Thank you particularly to the listener, who shall remain nameless, who pointed out that there are a large number of completed collections available on eBay at very reasonable prices. Yet again, proving that my childhood memorabilia is, well, worthless rather than priceless. Never mind. The pleasure I get from these things comes from when you remember how you got the badges. Sitting in the back of my father's Singer Gazelle at the petrol station with my sister, carefully opening each little packet and hoping the badges that we were short of would emerge, blinking into the light. If you'd like to share your memories or thoughts on anything we cover in the show, you can do so on our blog, www.my70stvchildhood.com. Visit our Facebook page at My 70s TV Childhood, tweet at 70s TV Childhood, or you can email me directly, oliver at my 70s TV Childhood.com. Now, my wife thinks I watch a lot of television, even now, but I don't think I do. As a child in the 1970s, I had a voracious appetite for TV programmes and must have consumed hundreds of hours of programming a year. But now, I don't seem to have much time to watch television, what with work, having a social life, and other interests taking much of my spare time. Also, I think the way we consume television has changed radically, as we've discussed in a number of our past episodes. Unlike the 1970s, where families crowded around the television set determined not to miss a programme because, pre-video recorder, that was their only chance to see it, Today, we can watch pretty much everything, wherever and whenever we want. For me, that has also changed the nature of what I watch and how I consume my telly programmes. And more and more often, I end up watching box sets of long-running dramas that one friend or another has recommended. These are also tracked by the streaming service providers, so I'm always getting emails and notifications on my phone 
berating me for not having completed all 50 episodes of The Good Place, or telling me I must have forgotten to watch the next season of Schitt's Creek. Well, thanks for all the reminders, but it's not that I've forgotten. It's just that I don't have enough time in the day and night to watch all of the marvellous television which is out there. I've noticed that Sky have been rerunning every episode of The Marvelous Sopranos, which I loved first time round, but can't find time to see again. Similarly, The Wire and other fantastic works of genius, but where and how do I get the time to watch? Oh, and a confession. Now, just between you and me, promise not to tell anybody, I've never watched Breaking Bad. Yes, I repeat, I have never watched Breaking Bad. Not because I don't believe all my friends who swear it's brilliant, but because I simply don't have the time. Going back to the 1970s, there were a number of distinct differences. Firstly, I did have more time, as one of the big advantages of being a small child is that you don't need to bother about things like working to earn your keep, where stuff comes from, and how to drive a car, for example, as it's all taken care of for you. Secondly, there was so much less to choose from on the TV. There were some great shows, but also some not-so-good ones. And, in order to watch your favourite BBC or ITV show, because let's face it, that's all we had, you had to make sure your backside had been plonked in front of the screen at the right time. Otherwise, you missed it. What this meant was that TV was designed to be taken in smaller bites. No binge-watching seven episodes of The Real Housewives of Cheshire here. Oh no. TV designed to be consumed in small chunks by families sitting around the box together. In my opinion, the best example of how television was designed to be consumed in the 1970s was to be found in the BBC's tea time schedules. Now, for those listeners not from the UK or who didn't grow up with tea time, Tea time is a vague reference to a time of day at the end of the afternoon and before the early evening really gets into its stride. Now, don't be confused by the current vogue for afternoon tea. That's something a bit different. No, tea time was when British people came home from their offices, factories, schools and colleges and had their evening meal or their tea. If this sounds confusing, it isn't. Many families ate together, invariably with a cup of tea. In our house, my sister and I had tea with my parents, who then went on to have dinner later after we'd gone to bed. Anyway, back to the clever scheduling. Invariably, we'd have our tea about 5.30 in the afternoon, and often it would be had in front of the television, as my parents would want to watch the early evening BBC News Bulletin, which was shown at 5.40. And every day, there would be a short five-minute programme on, just before the news, which we and many other families would watch together. Other than Saturday nights, I think this is probably the only time when we all sat down together, given my father was often working in the evening during the week. And there were some classic shows in this slot, many of whom I'm sure you remember. The first one I remember making a point of watching was Hector's House. This was a bought-in French stop-motion animated show featuring some interesting characters and, quite amazingly, ran for 78 episodes. Way back in our first season, you may remember me discussing this show with our guest, George, 
I think the first distinct memories I have of, of children's TV, I think there's probably two. I think first it would be The Herbs. Oh. Um, and then uh, alongside that would be Hector's House. Two classics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you're going back to them now, and especially Hector's House. I, it's you know it is slightly bizarre, um, but again, but again, as, as a child, it's just like yeah, you know, um, he seems a bit focused on his garden, does Hector, doesn't he? Um, it's only when you'll see a garden, uh, you know, as a grown up, you think, oh my god, can you imagine him as a neighbour. Um, <laughs> so, so tell us about Hector's house for those who don't remember it. What what was the premise of Hector's house? Uh, well, I mean, as I remember, it, and, and you know, this is. This is something else I remember from, uh, or, you know, you sort of started appreciating. There's a lot of children's TV around that time. I think only a small percentage was actually homegrown. I mean, Hector's House and Barnaby the Bear couldn't stand, um, was um, sort of a, were French, alongside things like the Magic Roundabout. So I think that there was a, a lot of children's TV was, was sort of imported from abroad at that time, although, you know, when you're watching it, you didn't really realise it. But Hector's House was... Funnily enough, it was about a house owned by this dog called Hector, although I don't think you actually ever saw the inside of his house. I think it was always just focused on his garden, about which he was very particular. Um, and the other main characters were, I think, his next-door neighbour, Kiki the Frog. Kiki the Frog, um, I remember Kiki the Frog. Uh, who seemed to be quite relaxed about property rights and things like that. Um, uh, and then Madame Zaza, who was the cat. But I could never, I'm just trying to think, I didn't know whether there's some sort of cross-species relationship going on between Hector and Zaza. <laughs> well, that's one that I suppose was uh, never let on to. Or, 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 <laughs> or, or, or whether, I don't know. Can you remember? Where, I, where was? I, I can't remember. I, mean, I remember I Hector's he house. He sat in a chair sewing most of the time. Because it was all, oh, silly old Hector. Oh. Because he'd always, he'd always be brought, he'd always put, he'd always be put in his place by the end of the program. But yes, yeah, I I suppose perhaps I I was a bit innocent in those days. I never thought about any kind of relationship between any of the characters of that kind. But um, yes, I mean they were French after all. Well, (laughs) but did Madame Zaza live with Hector in his house or not? I can't, I can't think of it now. I well, I guess, I guess we never saw inside, so we didn't actually know the detailed arrangements of what happened within Hector's house. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well. And Hector wasn't the only French import in the five minutes before the news slot. While Hector's House used the original French script, the Magic Roundabout took the French visuals and overlaid them with a very British script, written by Eric Thompson, father of Emma. This show is one of my, and I'm sure many of you listening's, favourites from the 1970s. It had everything. Well-drawn characters, great visuals, and great storylines full of Thompson's dry humour and all of this in episodes which were five minutes long. So, how many of the main characters do you remember? The undoubted star of the show was Dougal, a long-haired dog of indeterminate breed. Some say he was a Sky Terrier, but whatever he was, for all of us, he was a star. Dougal was, at the same time, childlike 
and world-weary. He carried a typically British cynicism about most things, and his sardonic comments were the highlight of many episodes. I'm not sure whether she owned Dougal, but Florence was a little girl who spent most of her time with Dougal, and was a sort of bystander to the strange things which went on in the forest around the magic roundabout of the title, which was operated by Mr Rusty, another human character. Other characters included Zebedee, who was... Well, what was Zebedee? Oh yes, well, he was he was a sort of jack-in-the-box with magical powers, and generally the sensible voice of reason, although I do remember Dougal sometimes shutting him in his box to stop him talking. Zebedee also typically ended each episode by calling everyone to order and saying, Time for bed! At which point the credits would roll. The other main characters were animals, Brian, a snail, who was always trying to get the better of Dougal, which, to be honest, wasn't always that difficult. Dylan, a rather spaced-out hippie rabbit, who appeared to be totally stoned throughout the programme, and therefore was very popular among students of the day. The other main player was Ermintrude, a pink-spotted cow, who wore a large straw hat and ate flowers. For those of you who never saw the show, I bet this doesn't sound that appealing. But the thing that made the programme so memorable was the genius that Eric Thompson brought to the scripts and the deadpan voicing he gave to all the characters. The programme became such an institution, loved by children and adults tuning into that pre-new slot. It was so popular that callers jammed the BBC switchboard with complaints when a plan was announced to move the magic roundabout to an earlier time slot, And happily for all, that didn't happen. The show ran for an incredible 441 episodes between 1965 and 1977, and it secured a special place in our hearts, making that pre-news five minutes a must-see in the BBC One schedules. As well as The Magic Roundabout, there were a host of other shows who took on that slot, which became firm favourites of British children in the 70s. We spoke about Wimbledon Commons' most favourite residents at length in our earlier episode, Remember You're a Womble, so I won't dwell on them for too long, other than to say that, once again, the narration of Bernard Cribbins brought the show to life and made the characters so memorable. It's really difficult to make a successful series when each episode is only five minutes long, but the magic roundabout and the Wombles prove that this can be done. Others who filled the slot included Parsley the Lion, in a spin-off from The Herbs. I'm a very friendly lion called Parsley. And the gentle Oliver Postgate animation, Ivor the Engine. Ivor the Engine. There he is, trundling along the loop line above the quarry. And there's Jones the Steam, his driver, without a care in the world. How many of you just then were thinking of the steam train noises? Etc, etc. Now, Ivor was the engine who pulled the trains on the, now apologies to my Welsh listeners, Merioneth and Clanticilly Railway Traction Company somewhere in the top left-hand corner of Wales. 
The first series of Ivor was actually broadcast in 1959, and the show was subsequently revived in 1975, running to 66 episodes in all. The plots were very gentle, and like in so many other Postscape productions, not that much happened. Ivor's driver, Jones the Steam, and the station master, Dye Station, had to deal with tasks like delivering coal to grumbly gasworks, escaped donkeys on the line, oh, and a, and a large Welsh dragon called Idris. All very charming, and five minutes of escapism before the reality of 70s Britain burst onto the screen in the early evening news. Now, I can't talk about this slot without mentioning Captain Pugwash, another regular occupant. I also want to dispel the urban myth about the names in the show. It's become almost accepted as fact that the characters were named with sexual innuendos attached, but this is complete nonsense, as the newspapers The Sunday Correspondent and The Guardian discovered in 1991 when they were sued for libel by Pugwash's creator, John Ryan. Captain Pugwash was great fun. Just the opening theme tune is enough to raise a smile for me. And, yet again, the mastery of the five-minute TV slot is demonstrated by the show's strong sense of character. Pugwash himself is a coward, and doesn't seem to be a very successful pirate, as his ship, the Black Pig, never seems to attack anyone, never mind other ships. Tom, the cabin boy, is the brains in the crew, and invariably gets them out of trouble. And Pugwash's nemesis, Cutthroat Jake, is a real pirate. Actually quite scary and complete with an eye patch. Blistering barnacles. What a show. Now, as well as the classic hits that were shown in this famous pre-news slot, there are also one or two which don't have such a widespread following, or are not as fondly remembered. To this day, I still have no idea who Crystal Tips and Alistair was aimed at. It was one of the archetypal 70s cartoons, which was full of rainbows and love and peace. The main protagonist, Crystal Tips, a girl whose name was destined to be used to address any girls at our school with curly hair, had simple adventures with her dog. There was no dialogue, just music. Now, I'll go out on a limb here, but I strongly suspect it was the work of one or more people on drugs. Did you like it? If so, perhaps you can explain to me what the hell it was about. We also had another European import, Barba Papa, which I know I mentioned in previous episodes. If you don't remember the show, it's a, it's a bit hard to explain. Imagine a family of giant, multicoloured, shape-shifting blobs of Play-Doh. Um, and that sums it up, really. A bit scary, and I don't mean that in a good way, and altogether ludicrous. Perhaps the early seeds of Brexit were sown by that show, when a generation of children discovered that French cartoons were, at the very least, not like ours. 
The final oddity I'm going to mention, and probably the strangest of all of the shows to inhabit the five minutes before the news, was first broadcast in 1977. Where do I start with Ludwig? Well, Ludwig was a sort of glass egg who lived in a wood with lots of nice animals. In most episodes, Ludwig would rescue the animals from some kind of terrible threat by using a variety of facets that came out of his egg, like arms and legs or even helicopter rotor blades. Now, I can see I'm not painting a very good picture here, but even if you've seen the show, it's near impossible to describe. Oh yes, Ludwig, the glass egg-type creature, also played the violin to classical concert standard. This is all getting a bit much, so I don't propose to say any more on the subject, other than, ah, Ludwig. Before we leave the subject of the prestigious just-before-the-news slot, there's one other show I have to mention. It burst upon an unsuspecting world one afternoon just before the news in January 1976 and almost immediately became a national institution. Mrs. Brown first met Paddington on a railway station, which was how he came to have such an unusual name for a bear. The Adventures of Paddington Bear was produced from the same film fair studio that produced The Wombles and The Herbs, and was based upon the best-selling books by Michael Bond, which almost every 70s child had read at school. The programme was made using stop-motion animation techniques for all the characters except Paddington, who was a three-dimensional bear. It was also narrated by Sir Michael Horden, who was one of the biggest theatrical and film actors of the time, and whose caring, heartfelt narration lifted what was already an excellent show into an all-time classic. It also had a great theme tune and opening credits. Paddington was so charming, so helpful, although his help often backfired, producing hilarious results, and, well, just a force for good. So as a result, Paddington Mania swept the country. And I don't imagine there were many houses in the United Kingdom that didn't end up with a Paddington figure, poster, bedspread or pencil case. I myself had a small figure, probably about three inches high, that sat on the table by my bed. I've also got some very happy memories of watching this with my family. I, my sister, mother and father all loved the programme and we were instantly hooked from episode one onwards. And I guess that's just what the BBC wanted in this slot. Keep the audience from children's television, and transition to those wanting to see Richard Baker and co. reading the news. Paddington proved perfect for that purpose. Do you have memories of the five minutes before the news slot? If so, or if you'd like to share any of your memories of your own 70s TV childhood, 
then get in touch at www.my70stvchildhood.com. Visit our Facebook page at My70stvChildhood, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or you can email me, oliver at My70stvChildhood.com. Do you know, I've really enjoyed thinking back to that special five minutes before the news and the classic shows which filled that scheduling slot during the 1970s. I hope you have too, and really look forward to welcoming you back soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.